experienced in these blackouts, blackout, stretches of time you can't account for. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Captain's Log. This is your captain speaking, Jose Valle Jr., joined virtually by my trusted co-host and first officer, Mason Schrader. Welcome, Mason, to today's episode. Hello. It's very, it's the earliest that we probably have recorded in a while. It's 9 a.m. for me. It's like regular daytime for Mason. It's like 11. Yeah. So if everyone's like, man... Jose sounds really like radio show host right now. That's why. Honestly, it's better than your normal true crime voice. Hmm. So, Mason, are you ready to get into some fucked up shit? We're not going to have like a super long introduction. I just, you know, we got business to talk. Are you are you ready to get into some? And when I mean fucked up shit, it's not so much like this isn't one of our uh-oh episodes. But it's more like, oh man, that's that's fucked up that they're doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I can't wait. Well, good. Because today, Mason, we're continuing our Ervil of Baron and the Church of the Lamb of God series with part three, in which we will finally cover Ervil's rise to power and the creation of his church. We'll maybe also end with a little discussion on cult mentality and just what makes the perfect cult member. Are you ready Excited. to begin, Mason? I sure am. Well then, put on your Sunday best because church is in session. Oh man. Yeah, we got to sit here for like two and a half hours and just some old guy being like, ah, God, and you're like, Jesus Christ, is it weird that I have a boner right now? You know how you get those church boners? Let's do the podcast. Okay. I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have time to do what you, what, what, I don't have time to unpack that. Let's okay. just do the podcast. That's fine. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you? When we last left the LeBaron family, both Ben and Wesley had laid claim to the mantle of the one mighty and strong, and both had eventually lost their minds, with Ben in a mental institution and Wesley building spaceships and screaming over the radio about the end of days. Which is, I think that's just everyone's conservative uncle now, no, that's I just think. How our, that's just how our podcast is going to end. <laughs> yeah. yeah. With one of, us in, a, with one of yeah. us in a mental institution and one of us building spaceships. I, I don't know wait. who's who yet, but that's how it'll end. It's funny because at the beginning of the podcast, I think I could have told you clearly which was which, but now it's just, it's you know, it's a mm-hmm. 50-50. You know? Yeah. We grew up, a pandemic hit, now who knows what's happening. Yeah. Well, this all led to the reign to the end of the reign of the House of Ben and the beginning of the reign of the House of Joel. And that is where our story will begin. Our story picks up on a mountainside in Farmington, Utah, about 15 miles north of Salt Lake City. Joel had ascended to the mountain in hopes of receiving heavenly guidance. He now found himself the host to all 19 of God's previous prophets. 
they had an important revelation for him on that sunny afternoon. He was set to be the 20th. Can you imagine that? Being host to all 19 of God's prophets and like without planning ahead of time. Like you don't know who has a gluten allergy. You don't know who's going to, mm. you know, it's just, mm, I don't know. I love now, hosting parties, but I wouldn't. Are there 19 prophets? Is that like, what's I this guess based off of? I guess through the Old and New Testament, there are 19. Okay, so that's just like a generally accepted number well, of prophets. This I've, isn't like. It might, I don't know if he's, it might be 18 and he's including Grandpa uh, Joseph Smith, and or it might be 17 and he's including Joseph Smith and Grandpa Johnson. Because uh, okay. as we'll see later on, those are the only two from the Mormon church that, that they believed were uh, actual prophets. Although, yeah, like, for true. instance, Ervil, although he respected Brigham, he didn't believe that Brigham was actually a prophet of, of God. He believed that the mantle had passed on to uh, his grandpa, or right. great-grandpa. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So after receiving the news, Joel simply climbed down the mountain, found the nearest payphone, and called his brother Florin and told him to pick him up. He then set off to bring order to the house of God. Can you imagine that? Just getting a call from your brother like, yeah, listen, hey, uh, could you come uh, yeah. pick me up? I just... Uh, oh, sure, yeah, I can pick you up. Yeah, it's not a big deal. I just um, spoke mm-hmm. to all 19 of God's prophets, um, and I got to go to the store and the bank later too, so I just... Uh-huh. Uh, the prophet thing, what? What's up with that? Oh, yeah, they were just, they came by to let me know that I'm the new prophet. It's not a big deal. I just have to, like, restore order to the house of God and everything. Oh, But mainly okay. I've got to get to the bank before five, so I just. Yeah, no, that actually makes perfect sense for this family. Yep. So, <laughs> that, oh, yeah, that's that honestly. That actually, yeah, yeah honestly, that, that gotcha. Okay, yeah. why didn't you just say so? Uh, Florin was weary of Joel's revelation. Because he seemed, it seems that he was one of the ones who had a brain in this family. Because after two of his older brothers had made the same claims, and it hadn't turned out so great, so Florin asked Joel if he was certain he hadn't been tricked, if he <laughs> knew without a doubt that the voices he heard didn't belong to the devil. I also love like, oh, this sounds crazy. <laughs> was it the devil? Yeah, not like, no, like, that's not, not why like, it's crazy, Florin. <laughs> right, not like, this sounds crazy. Are you sure you don't have, like, an underlying mental illness? You know, schizophrenia normally is genetic, so if our older brothers had... Yeah. You know, that sounds scary. Are you sure it wasn't the devil? Joel told him he understood where he was coming from. Uh, he also wondered that. But he knew without a doubt he hadn't been tricked because, Mason, he had put uh-huh. them all to the acid test. Now, the acid test was a formula set forth by Joseph Smith himself. It involved actually grabbing the hand of the divine personage during a revelation. Joel had grabbed all 19, apparently. Yeah, so I guess Joseph Smith was like, no, 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 no. Look, here's how I I know my revelations are true. I touched their hand. And people were like, oh, thanks. That made that true. He's like, yeah, when Jesus was talking to me, I held his hand. Now is it did you do they call it the acid test or is that Yeah, that's what they called it, the acid test. Because I can only assume if you shake the hand of a devil it will burn like acid. Sure. Wasn't okay. explained. But yes, let's say that. I like that. That seems yeah. to make sense. Well, that was enough for Florin, who became a loyal disciple of Joel and his church of the firstborn of the fullness of time. I always like how these brothers like at first, they'll, like, question it, and you're like, yes, that's right. Okay, yeah, maybe they're going to turn out, like, 
all right. And then, you know, they, they're presented with the tiniest bit of like religious evidence. And they're like, ah, that's good enough for me. <laughs> I'll give Joel, my whole you... life to you wholeheartedly too. Joel, how do you know that wasn't the devil? I shook their hands. Oh, okay. That okay. How much money did you need? Yes. As 1955 had begun, there was no sign that Joel LeBaron would have the biggest year of his life. He lived in a modest home with his two children and wife in Colonial LeBaron, earning his money as a corn trader. Um, I trade corn. Yeah, I don't. I trade corn. What questions do you have? I trade corn. Do you farm the corn? No, I don't farm the corn. I'm not a farmer. I'm a corn trader. I trade corn. Where do you get... Okay. Are you like a middleman? Where do you get the corn? I trade the corn. I trade things for corn, and then I trade corn for things. Wow. Um, yeah. Okay, I just... I, I... You wouldn't believe the price of a cob. How much is it? At least a, at least a sack of cats. Sir, as a... As an agent of the IRS, I just don't think this is going to fly. I th- a we whole have to conduct bag of cats for a cob of corn. I'm not sure how, but I know you're committing fraud somehow. I don't know exactly how, but the numbers have to show fraud. I don't know. There's no... <laughs> there's no... Uh, there's no... <laughs> sorry, I just threw my cat because he was biting me. Anyway, yeah, great corn yeah. trader. Sure, makes perfect. <laughs> no, sense. I, I, I was, I was just as confused. I thought they meant corn farmer, but no, I guess corn trader. Joel was considered one of the level-headed brothers of the family, but he was also considered one of the dimmest. His school teacher, Clarence Turley, great name actually, yeah. uh, would remember Joel as pretty slow. The other LeBaron kids I taught, Ervil and Nestor, they were pretty quick. But Joel seemed a couple of steps behind. I always felt he had a bit of an inferiority complex. At this time, Joel had joined Rulon Alred's fundamentalist organization and had even rejoined the LDS Church, who had excommunicated him. Ex, there you go. Who had excommunicated him only a couple of years prior? Which again, I guess excommunication means nothing because you can just just wait a little bit and then join up. Well, you can't be excommunicated when the prophet tells you that you're fine. And I'm the prophet, and I say it's fine. Oh, cool. In September... Your ex excommunicated. Ah, ha, ha, ha. I see what you did. Yes. Very nice. Yeah. In September of 1955, Joel heard that Florin and Verlin were... (laughs) Just the names in this family, you know? Florin, Florin, Verlin, Verlin, Ervil. Ervil. Yeah. In September of 1955, Joel heard that Florin and Verlin were planning a trip to the U.S., to Utah, specifically. Since in his 32 years of life, Joel had never crossed the border to America, he decided to tag along. I thought Joel was on top of a mountain in Utah when he got the this is, revelation. This is, we've traveled back in time. Oh. So this is leading up to it. Okay, I see. We're doing a classic storytelling bit of a flashback. This is a, fla- this is yeah, a flashback. This is flashback, okay. yeah. First, the brothers visited Esther in Short Creek, a polygamist community between Arizona and Utah. From there, they went up to Salt Lake City to meet up with Wesley, who was still spouting his claims to his father's mantle and building his spaceships in preparation for the coming Armageddon, as you do. Yes. While driving around Salt Lake City, the topic of the mantle came up, and to everyone's surprise, Joel announced that he 
had actually been given the mantle by his father. At first, Wesley was taken aback, but after Joel told him the details of the ordeal, Wesley decided to join forces with his younger brother. I, I just, I, it seems like a Monty Python bit in this family to have a different person be like, I'm actually the one mighty and strong. Just another one comes out like, no, I'm the one mighty and strong. You know what it is? It's that episode of SpongeBob where they all pretend to be Squidward. <laughs> you know what I'm yes. talking about? Yes. I'm Squidward. No, I'm Squidward. <laughs> I'm the mighty and strong. I imagine that car ride felt like one of those family dinners when like the one uncle who has a like a just a um, controversial opinion brings it up and you're like, fuck, here we go. We're going to get into a whole thing, you know, like I feel like that was probably uh, Florin and Verlin just being like, oh, shit. Here they go talking about the mantle. I think they missed a opportunity to use the power of friendship and family. Hmm. Because, like, at this point, if I were in this family, I'd be like, guys, 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 what if <laughs> we are the mighty and strong? Yes, actually. Genuinely, at this point, because even, it, it won't come up later on, but even aside from Ervil and Joel, there were still other people who claimed the mantle. I think one of yeah. uh, I think one of Wesley's kids would, at one point, also claim mm-hmm. the... Yeah, so... With uh, Florin joining them as well, the brothers set out to the state capital and filed articles of incorporation for a new church. The Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Time. (laughs) Just just a name, man. Just a big old name. Firstborn of the Fullness fullness of of Time. time. The CFFT? CFFT, yeah. That's not bad. It's not great when there's... Of the... Of the... the, Of the... Of. So, taking out the actual words, right? This title is The Of The Of The Of. Not good. Not good. There are six thes and ofs combined in this name of this sentence. Mm -hmm. Or this of this name. Apparently, naming churches was not the LeBaron uh, strong suit. The three brothers baptized each other in a pool in Wasatch Springs. Uh, A public pool, in case you were wondering. Yes, it was a public pool. You're baptized. No, you're baptized. Imagine just someone swimming laps past them. No, you're baptized. Someone just floating by on a little pool noodle like, whoa, sorry guys. (laughs) Can you just push my my tube away, please? Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Anyway, I baptize you. you in the name of... However, Wesley's membership wouldn't last long. You see, he had assumed that he would lead the new church. But (laughs) Joel had actually signed the incorporation papers. So he accused Joel of cheating him out of his church and left, refusing to take orders from his younger brother. Which, as someone who has a younger brother, I totally get that. They're like the Three Stooges, but like (laughs) so much dumber somehow. They are. Can you imagine as they're baptizing, you know, and they're like dunking one head yeah. and then it's like he stands up ah, and n- slaps n- the other? Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, Jesus fucking Christ, you goddamn goons. Get your shit together. Figure something they else are, out to do. They're all just goons trying to not be goons. You know what I mean? Just it's imagine if a group of goons were like, what if we, you know, it's like a union, but it's like, what if we can a all union, have the a, power? A goon union. A goon union. Yeah. Yes, it, it's a goonion of like all cult members who were like, well, I think I could be. Yeah. It's actually the whole thing of this is crazy because it's just 
It's just there was one guy mm-hmm. who said, this is my guy. Yeah. But then there was one guy that was like, nah, it's me. And then it was like, nah, it's me. Nah, it's me. Hey, we're like six <laughs> generations removed from the prophet, yes. and nobody agrees who the next prophet is. Exactly. It's like if it's... they took a vote, and they'd be like, did everybody vote for themselves? And everybody would be like, yeah. Yes. Yes. Jesus Christ. Joel revealed to Florin that he too had doubts and said he must seek further information. And this is where we we catch up. He then set out for a period of solitude and suffering. A very Christian, a very Christian Mm -hmm. thing to do. He vowed not to eat or shave until he had the answers he sought. I just call that depression, but okay. Yeah, all right, buddy. That's just seasonal depression. Uh, Yeah. That's just Christmas for Jose. Yeah. Yeah. He set into the wilds of Farmington Canyon and returned after less than a day. At first, <laughs> which is... It was actually uh, really hard. It was hard out there. It was actually I'm, really hard. In the book, the way that Anderson presents it is that he just got hungry and he was like, ah, it's time to come down. Uh, you know, after about 11 p.m., I was like, ah, it's lunchtime. I realized I left my phone and I was like, ah, oh, shit. At first, the LeBaron family was appalled by Joel's actions because at this point, they were all members of Rule on Allred's fundamentalist group and they had been working pretty fucking hard to fix their image and put the mess of Ben and Wesley behind them. Maud, the LeBaron matriarch, even went as far as to deny Joel's claim and Ervil was particularly saddened by the news. Knowing all of this, Joel remained behind and sent Florin as his messenger to Colonial Baron. Florin assembled the family and read Joel's message to them. Thus saith the Lord unto my servant, Rulin C. Allred. I have called my servant, Joel F. LeBaron, out of the land of Mexico, even as I called my servant Moses, that through him I might deliver my people from bondage. For the prayers of my saints have ascended unto, for the prayers of my saints have ascended unto my ears, and I have heard them. In this manner do I answer them. The place known as Colonia Labaran in the land of Mexico, in the state of Chihuahua, Chihuahua. in the municipality. I know I was. I oh. was that was a that was a that was a character choice. Oh, okay, good, good, good. In the municipality of Galena, Galeania. Yeah, I think it's Galeana. Galeania, uh, and I call you, Rulon, by my own voice out of the heavens to be a counselor to my servant Joel, that he may have help in the establishing of this work. And I say unto you, go forth with all those who receive this word and gather together money by the sale of properties, by tithes and offerings, and every honorable means to be consecrated unto the Lord for this work. Don't you love how God is all-powerful and all-knowing, but he's like, "Ah, you guys got to get some money together, man. (laughs) And also how he's like... Nah, make that make that English sound dumb. I was just gonna say that. I love if this is really how God talks. Why can't he just talk normal, man? I'd right. even take a fucking British accent at this point. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm sick of this. And I say unto thee with the shut up, man. Come on, here's, you can do better. Here, you literally invented language, Alma. Once again, and I just love Alma because we were making the joke earlier about the brothers being like, ah, good enough for me. That was literally Alma. So he once again jumped behind a prophet brother, having Florin baptize him 
the next day into the firstborn church. Did it with Ben, did it with Wesley, now he's done it with Joel. He's just like, yeah, uh, no, no I, sounds Yeah, sure, right. sounds good to me. Yeah. I, look, all I know is it's not me. So <laughs> That's the thing is he never once was, oh, actually, I guess in the end he was like, no, actually, I will be the one to lead people. Um, is there no one left? Nope. I guess all I'll right. do it. Almost time to shine. <laughs> Ervil waited until Joel arrived at Colonial LeBaron and grilled him on this new church and his revelation. And after listening to Joel, he too would join. By the end of 1955, Maud joined too. Verlin would hold out another two years. Ben and Wesley would never recognize Joel's authority. Alma was named presiding bishop in charge of economic affairs, and Ervil was named president of the Mexican mission and all other missions until other presidents were found. But Ervil would prove to be a valuable asset, keeping the church together in its early days and drawing its first members. Soon, Joel would ordain Ervil, Patriarch of the Faith, second to Joel himself. It would seem, according to Herman Hatch, a neighbor from Colonia Juarez, that Joel had always listened to Ervil. They were always together, but ever since they were kids, Joel was a yes-man to Ervil. You'd see them together, but Ervil was always the spokesman, always did the talking. Joel would just kind of stand there and agree along. Joel was never very sharp, but Ervil was. I like that everyone is just like, yeah, Joel's a fucking idiot, dude. He's dull. Joel has a we call personality. He's got dumb dumb brain. Way. Yeah. <laughs> Joel's got dumb dumb brain. He's just got dumb dumb brain. Mm-hmm. Their childhood seemed to perhaps show warning signs of the competitive nature and eventual rivalry. You see, they would egg each other on to uh, riding waves down the Green River during flood stages. Verlin would recall watching the two play Burnout, a game in which they would throw baseball-sized gourds at each other as hard as possible, and the first one to complain about the pain was the loser. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's actually pretty relatable. Yeah, that's, that's the uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. When uh, it's like I remember, me and my cousins would uh, wrestle, like full-on, like beating each other up, and then whoever cried, we were like, well, you lost. <laughs> My friends and I would sit w- in four corners of a room, of a small mm. room, with our legs spread open and throw things at each other's balls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Take me back to those days, man. Mm-hmm. Life was I, so was, simple. I feel like I've truly never been happy since. Uh, genuinely. Yeah, man. Anyway. When Joel and Ervil were teens, Alma gave them boxing gloves so they could learn to stand up to the anti-Lebaron bullies in town. But more often than not, the two brothers would use the gloves on each other, hitting away until they were both bloody. Membership to the church was slow, and by the end of 1956, only three men had converted. But in August of 1956, Ervil and Joel completed Priesthood Explained, which laid out Joel's claim to his priestly authority and explained the kingdom of God according to the brothers. See, in a nutshell, what Joel was preaching was total and utter obedience to the Ten Commandments. In Joel's eyes, only when people truly accepted and lived by the Lord's commandments, a perfect law of liberty, as he called it, then could the kingdom of God be established. Then Jesus would return to earth and assume control over the nations and bring forth a never-ending age of of international peace and prosperity. But there was a catch. Once God's law was established, in order for it to be maintained, force 
had to be used. And the punishment for those who would violate God's law was death. And the most heinous of crimes that would warrant death was treason. Joel would... So, it's interesting because, as we'll see later on, there is a, a, a big difference between Joel and Ervil. Joel seems to be more uh, understanding, more caring. And I, I, I think, I'm not sure, if, if this was Joel's belief that, like, it would have to be maintained by force and the punishment would be death. It's very interesting because gotcha. it seems like a, 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 a um, like Herbal a thing. Yeah. It's if, if that was actually Joel who suggested that, then it seems like a deviation from his regular, uh, view and personality. But the fact that they wrote gotcha. it together makes me think that that was Ervil who was like, this is what it, sh- this how it should be maintained. Be, yeah. yeah. Cause as we'll see later on, that's way more of an Ervil thing than, than a Joel thing. Joel would also follow in the steps of his brother Ben and give himself a new title, the Grand Head, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> not not until this moment did I did I realize that kind of said that's that's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah she gave me the Grand Head last night. Got the Grand Head last night. Hey, babe, could I get some of that uh, Grand Head? <laughs> that head is grand. It's a pretty grand head. It was a title that, according to Joel, had previously been held by Adam. Abraham, Moses, John the Baptist, Joseph Smith, Benjamin F. Johnson, and Dare LeBaron. In late 1956, Joel was brought before an LDS church council and accused of apostasy. In 1957, Joel was excommunicated a second time from the LDS church. I'm sure they were like, we'll see you in three years. (laughs) This time we mean it. Unless... You stop doing this, and then you can come back because we'll take the money. Yeah. Yeah, 10%. Did you know that? Mormons pay 10% of their income as a tithing to the church. That's insane. 10% of their whole income, not like 10% of like how much they made that week, like 10% of what, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's pretty good. too much money. Pretty good shit, honestly. Yeah. That's why the church is worth $100 billion or whatever we said. Yeah. A big boom in membership came with the help of the French missionaries. A dozen or so young LDS men serving missions in France who were excommunicated after preaching a return to the fundamentalist ideals. Upon their return home, they heard of Joel's new church and ventured to Chihuahua to join. In gratitude, Joel named six of them to his quorum of twelve. They would help bring many more to the church. By 1960, the church had chapters as far as San Diego and Canada. The population of Colonial Baron had grown to 500 people, which, you know, isn't a lot of people, but for a town that was like, I think, just them, pretty Yeah, it's a, pretty, lot, it's a yeah. lot of people for a cult. Yes, actually, yeah. Many would join because of Joel's personality. See, aside from preaching fire and brimstones, he was said to have been humble and gentle. As his church grew, Joel still lived in a modest home wore threadbare clothes, and drove old, battered trucks. But Joel, unfortunately, suffered in economic matters. Every financial venture he had turned to shit. One of Joel's many money-making ideas was uh, the building of a sawmill. After carving roads and cutting down trees, Joel realized he didn't have the capital to build the proposed mill. Nice. Another project involved Holstein dairy cows with the intention of making a cheese factory. But unfortunately, the Holsteins, used to being fed alfalfa and hay, couldn't adjust to the sparse mountain vegetation and ultimately died. 
while Joel was in the Chihuahua Mountains chasing after another financial venture, uh, he left Ervil in charge of Colonel LeBaron, and Ervil was exercising his duties as patriarch, reshaping the social life in Colonial LeBaron. Ervil, in his uh, powers, had the power to bless and curse and receive revelation, something that he would abuse. This power quickly went to Ervil's head. He wanted to reshape life in Colonial LeBaron, but unlike his brother, who would let people make their own decisions, Ervil was much more dictator-like. Ervil transformed the colony into a communal society, deciding where members should work and having meals eaten at a communal table. If you're in a church and all of a sudden your leader goes, Hey, what if we got all communal all of a sudden? Get out, you know? The minute that they bring out the uniforms and they're like, We should all wear this. That's when I'm like, all right, I'll see you guys later. That's fair. Yeah, probably get out would yeah. be a good choice. If, what were the what were the shoes that the uh, Heaven's Gate wore? Like uh, Nike, Nike Legends? Is that where they were or something like that? Something like that, yeah. yeah. The minute they bring out matching shoes, that's when I'm like, <laughs> okay. Ervil would start a primary school, a kindergarten, and a nursery where the children would be taught Spanish and the perfect law of liberty. He also formed the United Women of Zion. Yes, we love a feminist. A semi Slay, Slay King, a semi-secret cabal of the colony's women where he would give nightly lessons on the coming apocalypse and their need to be ever vigilant. Mm. Yeah, not so much feminist and more just like, I know they've got their little hands and everything, so I've got, they've, they've got their hands in pies and I need to know about those pies. It sounds like a good precursor to having sex with them, too. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> he, in contrast to Joel Ervil wore tailored clothes and expensive shoes. He drove new sedans and ate better, uh, different food than everyone else. He had no interest in helping with the workload and instead read scriptures to church members as they labored under the hot mm-hmm. Mexican sun. Can you imagine being out there busting your fucking ass in the, in the field and your boss is like, all right, boys, you've been working real hard. I'm going to read Genesis to you. <clears throat> And God, I'd be like, dude, no. No, 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 no. Congratulations, you've been working so hard, you get a raise, you get two <laughs> sermons. You imagine him just being like, I'm tired, that was a hard day. And it's like, meanwhile, you've got like a bloody fucking hand, and one of your buddies had heat stroke, and he's like, hey guys, we uh, we really killed it out here today. I'm really proud of all of us. I know things got a little bit testy when uh, Brother Fred tried to drink my lemonade, and I spit punched him in the face and then spit <laughs> on him and said, you don't get lemonade. Lemonade is only for those who God's chosen and ch- God thinks you're a little rat fuck. But you know, I just feel like we came <laughs> through that. And now I think we can all agree we're very tired. We're very sweaty. We've all worked very hard. Uh, Brother Fred, his mouth is bleeding profusely, which honestly, lemonades would just hurt now. So, yeah. you know, let's get out of here, right, gang? Come on, huh? Look at this new suit I got. God, it's I left. It's Gucci. I was an engineer, man. I had Gucci a Gucci suit. Gucci suit Ervil. <laughs> yeah, I also. Gucci <laughs> suit Ervil. Watch out, you know? Gucci gang, Gucci gang. That's that's me. You that's guys will Ervil. get that in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I like the idea of him wearing like fucking designer out in the fucking yes. uh, dusty ass Mexican desert. 
Yeah. Just pulling up in a fucking like a, a Mercedes Benz and then stepping out in this fucking uh I don't even know, Gucci or fucking Prada or something. Yeah. Yeah. Dolce shit, and dude. Gabbana. Yeah. Huh? When you're if your boss ever shows up to your job site and he's wearing really expensive clothes, that's how you know you're getting fucked over somehow. You know what I yeah. mean? He's making mm-hmm. way more money than he probably should be. Yeah. Yeah. Many firstborners, which is what they are referred to, firstborners, they began to sense that Ervil had a growing lust for power. You know, after he clearly showed that he had a growing lust for power, they were like, oh, wait a second. Hmm. Yeah. One church member, Noel Pratt, who had joined in 1959, noticed this and launched a public campaign against Ervil, writing in the church newsletter, the root of the of whole problem is Ervil. We do not belong to Joel's church. We belong to Ervil's church. Ervil today collects parts of the tithing before the bishop ever sees it. He insists on being supported so that he can dedicate himself to the proselytizing work. The inner motivation is his hunger for power, which he loves to talk about. Yeah, so proselytizing is like mis- like going out and getting people, like missionary work essentially, but recruitment missionary work. It's what the Mormon church does. Mm. So, <clears throat> yeah, and and Noel Pratt will come up again. Um, he's uh, kind of the capriccio of this story, a guy who just had really good insight and everyone just kind of ignored, you know? Where he was it's like, actually because of the way that I sound, people seem to think that I not be shouldn't be taken seriously. Yeah, I'll be honest, I, I didn't listen to a fucking word you just said, man. Actually, uh, it's it's actually funny actually, what we're yeah, seeing shut, shut up, dude. From Ervil is actually what's up very common displays of cult leaders, and I'm just worried about us. Cool. So, um, anybody want lemonade? Soon, Ervil's lust turned from power to, you guessed it, Mason, women. Yay. Seemingly following in Brigham Young's footsteps, his brother Verlin would recall, as young girls grew to maturity, he let them know that it was his sacred duty to place them with a man of his choice. Far too often, his choice was himself. He could coolly tell a girl in the most sanctimonious matter that he was God's choice for her. Finally, Ervil reached the point that he could get a revelation to marry a girl faster and more often than anyone could imagine. Yay. Hi, what's your name? Uh, my name's Suzanne. Oh, awesome. I've had a, rev- a revelation that I can marry you, Suzanne. Congratulations. Oh. What? But Tell I... me, what's your favorite dish to cook? Oh, I'm 12. <laughs> I can't. I don't know. I don't. PB and J. Hmm. Could you do filet mignon? No. Okay, I've had a revelation that I'm not supposed to marry you. Oh. What? Next. <laughs> I like no to. Way. I like to imagine Ervil just stands at the the entrance to the town, and as new women arrive, he's like, mm, he's like looking at him. He's like, nah. And then the next one comes. He's like, oh. Yeah, so God told me I have to marry you. By the way, welcome to Colonial Baron. <laughs> Ervil had already married two Mexican women in the 50s. By the end of the 1960s, he would have 12 wives sealed to him with another in 1975, 
13 in total. But it seems that sex actually wasn't why Ervil wanted to have so many wives, which is why I would want to have so many wives. Now, honestly, I'd be fine with just one, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. But, hey, you know what? Mm-hmm. He didn't yeah, care. Sad. Yeah. He didn't care about pleasuring these women or even receiving pleasure himself. He cared about replenishing the earth with his offspring as great-grandpa Johnson had done. In the late 1950s, Ervil pursued Joy Marston, the sister of a childhood friend, Nephi Marston. After reluctantly agreeing to the union, Joy found her life with Ervil absolutely unbearable and abandoned him within months. Just like his dad. <laughs> that happened to his dad, too. So, Ervil turned his attention to Nephi's wife, Anna May. She had four children with Nephi and was a devout Mormon who was very upset when her husband told her of his plan to join the Church of the Firstborn. But according to legend, this all changed when she first laid eyes on Ervil. She fell in love instantly. If you like being your colladas... My oh yeah. She fell in love instantly, and while Nephi was away working in the United States in 1961, she and Ervil began an affair. The affair was not well hidden, and many throughout Colonial Baron knew of the ordeal. One member even caught the pair kissing on Anime's bed, which, what were they doing in their house is what I was wondering. When I read that, I'm like, <laughs> that, is what? Good, that is a good. Maybe question. we should be questioning that member too. What are they doing? Oh, You're sorry. I, so I, I was gonna fuck her. <laughs> or they're like, so the other day I, I was doing the normal thing I do on Tuesdays, where I go in a women's home and I, I steal underwear, and uh, I caught Anna May and Ervil uh, making out on her bed, and I think that's wrong. That's who? What kind of people are they if they're doing something like that? Listen, pal, we're an offshoot of the Mormon church. Uh... When Nephi returned, Anime told him she could no longer kiss his lips, or be his wife for that matter, because she and Ervil had been married in his absence. This incident would lead Joel to institute a bylaw, really at the, at the pressure of everyone else, that said women had to be divorced for at least six months before they could remarry, with Ervil and Anime being the exception. Anime would go on to have seven children with Ervil. Ervil's youngest bride would be 13-year-old Christina Jensen. Christina was the daughter of a first-born couple who wholeheartedly agreed to the union. Mm. Ervil would justify this pedophilic ordeal with a strange belief. See, Ervil believed that the Virgin Mary had become pregnant at 14, so there would be a select number of girls in the colonia who would be found worthy of marrying him. Once Christina was old enough to think for herself, however, she began to look for a way out. In 1974, she fled to the U.S. and kept custody of their two daughters. For Ervil, his wives gave him his first power base and his first batch of recruits. Two of his wives would kill for him, another would die because of him, and seven would provide children who would fight in the eternal holy war. And we'll get into it at the end of the episode, <clears throat> but his wives were actually very integral to this whole ordeal. And yeah, yeah, it's uh, very interesting. Oh, good. Yes. 
As Joel continued his financial ventures in the Chihuahua Mountains, Ervil made it clear to the people of Colonial Baron that he did not agree with his brother that the perfect law of liberty and God's civil law could be accepted freely. He argued that it was up to the firstborners to seek out traitors and cut them off from this world. During one meeting with the women of Zion, he asked them who among the group was ready to take up arms for the Lord and kill his enemies. I can't believe that this is the story that inspired Encanto. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a weird... You know what, though? That's the magic of Lin-Manuel Miranda, is he can just mm. take anything and make it art. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Hey, it's me. You know, that's how he talks. Mm-hmm. Lin-Manuel. <laughs> There's a really funny clip of him saying, uh, I think he says, Colombia, mi encanto, mi encanto. It's really good. That's like, my my that brother. more like Pitbull, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Hey, it's Mr. Worldwide. Mr. Mr. 305. Dot it. Yeah. <laughs> can you imagine Pit, Can you imagine this story, but it's Pitbull? Yeah. We got to cut off the traitors. Ah, well, I lost it there. You I lost it. Elvis. Uh, yep, I lost it. Damn it. Damn it. Mr. Worldwide. <laughs> Dot it. Dot it. <laughs> In- <laughs> we got to cut off the traitors. <laughs> Yeah, picture that with a Kodak. <laughs> Dial it. Better yet, take a picture of me with a Kodak. <laughs> it's one of my favorite lines of the song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, me not working hard. Yeah, right, picture that with a Kodak. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> See, when I when we when we eventually write the screenplay for this, I want Pitbull to play <laughs> Irvine Baron. <laughs> uh, in Ervil's mind, uh, traitors were all government officials, heads of state of nations, not following God's laws. So pretty much every nation on earth. This rhetoric worried a lot of members, especially Ralph Hybe, who in 1963 became convinced that Ervil and his followers were going to assassinate top government officials. And after the Kennedy shooting... His friend, Bob Cohn, with whom he had shared his worries, actually contacted the FBI about Ervil possibly having a connection to the killing. But after a brief, and I mean brief, investigation, the Bureau dismissed the concern. In the mid-1960s, the Grand Head finally came out of the Chihuahua Mountains and acted. Joel publicly denounced his brother's civil law doctrine and quietly dismantled some of the more controversial aspects of Ervil's brave new Zion. It seems that it was at this point, after having been given power and feeling it slipping away, that Ervil began to entertain the idea that he might have to do away with his brother. In the spring of 1965, Ervil visited Harold Tippetts and told him, You know, Harold, the man that is responsible for all the problems we're having is Joel himself. When Tippetts asked Ervil what he meant, Ervil coldly responded with, well, he's got to straighten up. He's got to straighten up or he's going to go down. It seems that Joel didn't see the contention coming from his brother and also didn't learn from leaving him in charge the first time. Because he comes back, he dismantles all these things, and he's like, man, Irville, you really made a mess of things. And then he leaves and puts him in charge again. See, Joel would establish a second church outpost in 1965 in the Baja California Peninsula. It was called Los Molinos. 
or the windmills. He built homes and arranged for converts to immigrate down from the U.S. Uh, and while he went away to do this, he left Ervil in charge of the of Colonial Baron once again. As soon as Joel set out, Ervil seized control of all church organizations and railed against the timidness of the firstborners and the leadership of his brother. He suggested the immediate application of God's civil law and made it clear to anyone who would dare stand in the way that they would face deadly consequences. As his militancy grew, so did the strain on his mental health. He would pinch his eyebrows more and more. He would go two or three days without sleeping and would often swipe at imaginary flies during sermons. He also seemed, which is, the the image of that is it's kind of spooky. It's just a man it's constantly a little, being like, fuck up, fuck up, ah, ah, you know? Guys, guys, guys says we got to kill. Yeah. We got to kill. And apparently he, he would go days without sleeping and then just fucking collapse wherever he was and then, you know, be asleep for hours because cool. his fucking body couldn't handle it. He also seemed to slip into near hypnotic spells. Tippets recalls that you could be talking to Ervil and Ervil would stare straight at you, but you could sense he wasn't seeing or hearing anything. Like his subconscious was aware of what was happening around him, but his vision would go into a block. He would remain like this for a minute before snapping out of it and continuing the conversation as if nothing happened. Can you imagine that? Like we're having a conversation and you're telling me something that I'm just like, huh. Yeah, that uh, reminds me that. Yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> anyway, and then my dad told me, like, just, you know what I mean? Horrifying. Oh, I would hate that, dude. Yeah. So, uh, it is around this time that Ervil began to grow extremely paranoid. Which, you know how in cults, when paranoia strikes, that's the best? Yeah. He was paranoid that the Catholic Church and the Knights of Columbus had him marked for assassination. There's actually a Knights of Columbus uh, building, like, down the block from me. I don't even know what they are. They're like a subset within Catholicism. Uh, they do... I'm not exactly sure what they do. Uh, they do, like, a lot of, like, service projects and... I thought they were just, like, fezes. Like they wore the fez? Yeah, and they drive the tiny cars in parades. Oh, yeah, again, I'm not, all I know is they used to come to my church and make really good uh, mountain man breakfasts every once in a while. Like, they would do, like, pancakes and some good hash browns and really good sausages and stuff. And I was like, oh, cool, the Knights of Columbus are here? Sick. Means we have good breakfast after church. Fair enough. Maybe they're, maybe they're like a, a disgusting little sect. I don't know. Fair enough. Good pancakes. Ervil began to carry a pistol at all times in the late 60s as a result of this paranoia. You know what you want in a, in a leader? You want him mm-hmm. to be really paranoid, and yes. you want him to start carrying around a deadly firearm. Those yes. are the two best combinations you could have. Yes. He would also move from one wife's home to the other, never sleeping near windows or with his back to a door, which I guess is also the thing I never realized is he's got all these wives, but they don't live together. They all have their own home. Which I don't know, yeah. for whatever reason, I thought they were all like in one big house. But no, that wouldn't work I out. I think that's normally how it goes. Yeah, that's what, it, yeah. But he, um, yeah, they each had like different houses. Around this time, Ervil found himself a loyal henchman in the form of Daniel Jordan. 
one of the French missionaries who had arrived in Colonial LeBaron in 1958. Although many in the LeBaron family believe Dan was the one who turned Ervil, it seems that in reality, both fueled one another's pathological tendencies. Many later pointed out that this relationship with Dan seemed to emulate the one Ervil had with Joel in his early years. Dan acted as Ervil's companion, chauffeur, bodyguard, advisor, and errand boy. When Joel received reports of his brother's erratic behavior, he dismissed them as exaggerations or misunderstandings. That can't be, because last time I was down there, I had to undo a bunch of the crazy shit he had done. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, is like, ah, no, Ervil wouldn't do that. Although when I, he did, he did do that, but he wouldn't do it again? Yeah. I, I don't know, guys. I'm just trying to I don't really care. Uh, Look, I'm in a different place now. <laughs> that place doesn't exist anymore, the other place. Yeah. When Ervil seemingly threatened Joel... Joe would tell folks not to worry, that he could handle his little brother. In 1969, the most blatant threat came during Joel's visit to Colonial Baron. During a Sunday school class, Joel was besieged by followers urging him to do something about his brother. Joel dismissed Ervil's decrees and repeated his belief that the brethren should accept God's law of liberty voluntarily. But when Joel was called out of the meeting, Ervil took the stand and said, I know as sure as I know that God lives, that my program is the only one that will establish the kingdom. I know that there are men in high positions who disagree. It will either be them or me. I also know that blood will run to solve our problems. Yes. Dan Jordan would chime in saying, We'll break that dry wood in this church in little pieces and burn it. Dan is just classic goon, man. He's just classic yeah. catch, man. Yeah. Fuck him up, Herbal. <laughs> After he was informed of what had transpired in his absence, Joel simply responded with, I am watching things. You ain't watching shit. Watch my balls, old man. <laughs> but by November of 1969... Joel could not ignore the Ervil issue any longer. Many had become loyal to Ervil, and others had left because of Joel's inaction. So, Joel called Ervil into the home of one of his wives on the eve of the church's general conference. So, the Mormon church does this thing called general conference, which is like their big meeting thing where they talk about like changes to the church, changes to doctrine, or whatever. They had also ad adapted this as well. So, on the eve of this general conference, he took him into a back room with Verlin present. There, Joel relieved Ervil of his duty as patriarch. At first, Ervil thought his brother was joking. But when he realized he wasn't, he put his face in his hands and wept. Joel and Verlin would also join him in weeping. And then suddenly, Ervil wiped his tears from his eyes and smiled widely thanking Joel and telling him, Joel, it's such a relief to me. You don't know the burden I've been under. Which is a really good villain scene of him being like, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Joel. You know, that mm -hmm. it's that clip from a uh, regular show or whatever where he's like, Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for being so, so dumb. Yeah, yeah. That's literally what just happened. Yeah. The brothers then embraced and went together to a home where the church leaders were waiting. More tears and embraces were had 
as they were informed Ervil was relieved of his title. Me, personally, if I was there, I would have been like, nah, 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 weren't you guys saying that you hate him or whatever? Why are you guys crying now? Because didn't you guys say that you wanted him gone or whatever? Keep that same energy, guys. Ervil would be called the next day to speak at General Conference, where he wept again as he acknowledged his removal. But Ervil would not give up on his mission. He now believed traitors to God's kingdom had infiltrated his church, and more importantly, his family. In a strange case of foreshadowing, Noel Pratt would predict the ensuing carnage to come in 1959, saying, The biggest mistake that Joel has made in the church is letting Ervil run it. The power struggle that Joel endured at the hands of Wesley was a mild prelude to what he was allowed at the hands of his brother Ervil. Ervil, Ervil's work is much more crafty than Wesley's. It was much more difficult to detect. It's not Wesley, nor is it Ben that should be feared. The one to fear, that's Ervil. I do like that last line of the one to fear is Ervil. Very yeah, uh, prophetic. Yeah, he's actually really the one who should be. you should be the most afraid of. Did I tell you about the time he punched me in the face after I asked for some lemonade? <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, he actually punched me in the face pretty hard. And I just wanted some oh, lemonade. God. I'm not so going to lie just, to you, dude. It's just your voice. Yeah. I just can't. Like, I hear it, but I don't hear it. You know? I've actually, the doctors say that they've never met a more annoying man when I came in to talk to him about the problems with my voice. I, I just did, I didn't hear it. I'm sorry. Yeah. And he was right. <laughs> because the new person at the top of Ervil's list of traitors was the fallen prophet. Joel LeBaron. The statement Lucifer made when he fell into the pit. It is better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. After being dismissed, Ervil was disappointed to discover that he actually had to follow church rules. He tried to take away another married woman, but was stopped by church authorities who reminded him of the six-month rule. And he was just like, guys, come on. That's not for me. That's like for the stupid people. Guys, come on. It's come me, Ervil. It's me, Ervil. Remember? I was like, you know? I was like, eh, my brother, you know? Look at my little suit. Look at my nice little suit. Look at my little car. Beep, beep. Get in. I'll give you a ride. Come on, yeah. guys. Come, come on. on. I don't really have to. Oh, you guys are serious. Okay. I'm just going to kill you all. I hope you know that, but it sounds good. Since he could no longer take money from the church, Ervil was forced to find new sources of income. He claimed to have the title to much of the land around Los Molinos and Colonia Leberin, so he sold off dozens of their parcels. He concocted outlandish development schemes, collecting seed money from investors and then disappearing. He even swindled his own mother out of her farm, selling it for $4,000. Ervil had begun to spread word that Joel was a fallen prophet, whose office, the office of Moses, was technically beneath that of the patriarch, so he didn't even have the authority to dismiss him. I also love running around being like, I'm the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that's Which, not a good oh, thing. Oh, I don't think we mentioned this. Sorry. Uh, so, friend of the, the show, a uh, guy who owes Mason his bones, uh, yes. reached out because he, he used to be Mormon, and he explained to me that the office of a, a patriarch is essentially a Mormon oracle, which, you know, we've covered in basically... A moracle? A moracle. And they, they give what's called patriarchal blessings, 
where they basically predict what's in vague terms what's going to happen in your life. So then when shit happens, you're like, oh my God, they were right, you know? I just read Zodiacs, like the yeah. newspaper horoscopes. Yeah. I just read those and be like, yeah, I, I have co- I have the app CoStar, and I'm like, oh. So do I. We yeah. both have it. Yeah, we're friends on it. He tried to sway Harold Tippetts and threatened him when it didn't work. By May of 1971, Joel had enough and summoned Ervil and Dan to Colonial Baron, possibly for excommunication. Ervil tried to turn Esther LeBaron to his side, trying to get her to join his business ventures and explain his execution plans. He told her that they were buying boats to run a fishing business so that the boats could be used to haul dead bodies out into the ocean when they began to execute everyone who opposed his doctrine. He also explained to her that they would start a concrete business so that they could make cement boxes for the bodies they would so they wouldn't float up to the surface. This guy just watched every mob film. I was going to say, look, Esther, I'm investing in every single thing that's obviously used for hiding bodies. The men slipped out of Colonial Baron before the meeting. Joel heard of their threats and was angry. He sent Verlin to deliver his message that Dan was removed from the Quorum of Twelve and both were close to excommunication. He also asked Verlin to tell them they were forked Tongued bastards. That's a great That's a band name. Forked yeah, tongued bastards. Forked tongued yeah. bastards. Yeah. Me and Mason are a couple of forked tongued bastards. One thing we need to understand is that a major point of contention between the brothers was Los Molinos. You see, Joel wanted to create an ejido at Los uh, Los Molinos, which it's a very complicated concept that I'm not really sure I understand uh, because I also researched it at like three in the morning. And I, I just, I didn't, essentially an ejido is land that cannot be sold or seized for debts, but remains the property of ejido members in perpetuity. It's communal land that is to be shared and worked together. It was one of the core pillars of the Mexican land reform in the 20th century. They're no longer a thing because I guess in the 90s, a uh, Mexican president stopped it but but back during the mexican revolution it was a big point to like calm the uh the country gotcha so i guess from my understanding it sounds like it's the ability for people who normally wouldn't be able to afford large parcels of land to be able to group up as a group and buy it together exactly and mutually own it yeah and and if and if it and also from what i read is that like you can't sell it unless all the members agree to sell it Yes, yeah. and it can't be seized because one member is exactly. in debt. Exactly, yes. So, Joel... Actually, that's a really good idea. It is, and and it makes sense that they stopped doing it, you know, because the government was yeah, like, it oh, seems this like is too a, good. Yeah. It seems like a thing that like would give let it was more a, people raise their it was, station, and it was I feel a like very, that It was happen. a very progressive thing when it happened. And yeah. then, you know, the Mexican government was like, no, 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 no. Wait a minute, poors are getting money. <laughs> yeah. Stop Wait a it. <laughs> Poor people have rights now. Uh, so Joel wanted it to be a community for both firstborners and Mexican campesinos. But Ervil wanted to build, in the most Trump-esque part of his personality, a luxury hotel and new marina on the Pacific coast. Ervil had been entrusted with purchasing the land, and rather than listing the church as the owners, he had put it in his name. And this was before he even was like, I'm going to betray my brother. Right. And it was some 8,500 acres in his name. So, 
1971, Joel hired a lawyer to protect Los Molinos from Ervil. On May 20th, 1971, Ervil announced that the Church of the Firstborn had fallen into apostasy and had received divine revelation that told him he was the one mighty and strong, and thus created his new church, the Church of the Lamb of God. In July of that year, Joel finally excommunicated Dan and Ervil, and he announced that Verlin would be the new patriarch starting in August at the General Conference. Before the conference, Ervil and Dan returned to Colonial LeBaron, and Ervil once again tried to convince Esther to join him. When she refused, he went across the street to the home of Larive Widmar, the wife of one of Joel's apostles, and told her of the coming executions. I also love that Ervil just goes around being like, yeah, you know, we're going to start killing people pretty soon here. Yeah. yeah. I already have yeah. boats and cement. So, if you want to join, you can. If not, that's all right. But I'm just letting you know. Pretty just soon here. No. I'm going to kill people. So, yeah, you could say I've been a little busy. Career's really taken off. The whole, like, killing people career. Yup. Can you leave my house yeah i just um yeah wrote right. a screenplay too i don't know if i said that can you leave <laughs> my house started a podcast anyway we'll talk about it later leave <laughs> he also told her uh that her mission larive's mission was to sway the people to his side all of which Esther overheard. And also, but there was no indication that Larive was on his side. Like, he just went to her and was like, hey, Larive, I got a special uh, mission for you. You got to sway everyone on my side because we're going to start killing people soon. And she was just like, okay, like, I, cool, yeah, I'll do that. Um, the next morning, Esther told Maud what she had heard, and Maud sent the first of many desperate letters to Ervil, uh, in that first one, she urged Ervil to stop his crusade, telling him the ghost of his father had appeared to her and asked her to help sort Ervil out. And when that didn't work, she wrote to Conway LeBaron, who was a relative that Ervil was keeping close, and she begged him to save Ervil from going down the same path as Ben. And they're sad. The letters are just sad. It's just a mother pleading with her son to not be crazy. Right. Uh, in these letters, Maud would also reveal that her father had actually received revelations too. So going back to my theory of mental illness running in the family, it actually makes a lot of sense if it was, if there's history for it, precedent on both sides. Right. Um, after many letters in March of 1972, Maud stopped writing and accepted that Ervil was truly lost. Around this time, Ervil began to visit Los Molinos regularly. He reminded residents that the land belonged to him and his church, not to Joel or the firstborners. He also warned them that a separation was coming, and those who didn't join him would face the consequences. All this was said while Ervil and his men were armed with large-caliber handguns. Just swinging around like the Jonah Hill scene from This is the End. Yeah. Ervil also tried to sway Alma to join him, but Alma believed Ervil to be possessed by the devil, which is surprisingly because, again, he's joined every brother, but apparently Alma, uh, when he recalled later on, he said that like he got a fucking horrible vibe from Ervil, and it was like 
he said in, in contrast when when the other brothers had come forward he always felt like this really like powerful light but when he talked to Irvoy he said he felt coldness and just a deep darkness I always thought that something about Ervil being one letter away from evil made it seem like he shouldn't be the prophet. Yeah. But that's just Alma's opinion. <laughs> he also told I'm me, Alma. Alma matters. Oh, no. No. He, <laughs> he also told him that he needed more time for a sign, maybe five years. Ervil told him he wouldn't fucking wait five years. Alma then went to Joel and told him what had transpired and warned him to stay on alert because he was worried that Ervil would try to kill Joel. Joel shrugged it off and told him he didn't believe Dan and Ervil were that stupid. Which, I just I just want to shake Joel and be like, dude, all the signs are pointing to you getting shot. Like, you have right. to do something. Yes. Joel was busy keeping his church afloat at this time with a welfare scheme that was justified by the early teachings of Joseph Smith, who taught that taking money from non-believing Gentiles, even through fraud or deception, was actually not a sin in the eyes of God. The scheme involved first-born women setting up residency in California and collecting welfare benefits by claiming to have been abandoned by their husbands and then moving their myriad of children from one home to the next. They were assured supplemental checks each month by doing so. In the summer of 1972, Ervil released Priesthood Revealed, which revealed his beliefs and intentions. It was at this point that Joel finally realized he was in danger. Yet when his followers offered protection, he refused it, for he believed his church was for martyrs. On August 10, 1972, Ervil released a message to a covenant people in which he listed Joel's personality traits in the past tense, and warned those who had, uh, who had spoken against him that they would be hunted down and killed. Can you imagine that? How spooky that would be? Like a, it's a, not great. An enemy of yours like releasing a book and being like, Mason was funny. Mason was charming. And Mason was dumb. But like just being like was, and you're like, yeah. wait, man, I'm still around. <laughs> what I'm do you still mean? here. Uh, so I think oh, you might no. have done a typo because I'm still alive. I think you meant to say is. Nope. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Ervil also told firstborners they could still join him or they could suffer a terrible fate. Many families left Colonial Baron and Los Molinos and returned to the U.S. One of Verlin's wife, uh, Irene, told Joel of her conversation with Ervil in which he told her Joel and Verlin were at the top of his hit list. Joel wept upon hearing this before telling Irene that if these were their plans, he would not stop them. He told her, Irene, I want to tell you something. I will be killed. On August 18, 1972, the Mexican government announced their approval of an ejido in Los Molinos. This was the final straw for Ervil, who had already lined up investors for his resort. So on August 20th, 1972... Ervil made his move. He tasks me. He tasks me, and I shall have him. I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round perdition's flames before I give him up. On that Sunday morning, 
Joel and two of his wives and several of their kids left Los Molinos for the drive to Colonial Baron. General Conference was going to be the following weekend, and Joel needed to work out lots of details beforehand. But before he could do that, he had an errand to run. He had to go to Ensenada, about 90 miles north of Los Molinos, where he had left his 1966 Buick a couple of days beforehand to be fixed by firstborn member Benjamin Sarate. Unbeknownst to Joel, Benjamin and several of his sons now followed Ervil. On his way to the Sarate household, he stopped by Delfina's house, who was Ervil's first wife, whom he had been a constant source of help for over the past two years, since Ervil had virtually abandoned her and her children. On this day, Joel passed a little money to Delfina and gave two of her kids a ride to the Ensenada marketplace. In Los Molinos, two of Ervil's men, Gamaliel Rios and Andres Sarate, had arrived. They explained that they needed to speak with Joel urgently. They were told he was on his way to Ensenada. The two jumped in their car and headed north as fast as possible. By the time Joel arrived at the Sarate house on Espinosa Street, Gamaliel and Andres were there waiting for him. Andres told Joel that his parents had moved a couple of days beforehand and had taken his car keys with them. But if he gave him a lift to their new home, Andres would get the keys. So Joel told him to take his pickup truck. So Andres drove away with the prophet's wives and children, leaving Joel and his 14-year-old stepson Ivan behind with Gamaliel. As Joel was attaching the tow bar to his car, Gamaliel engaged him in scriptural debate. After about 20 minutes, Gamaliel invited the prophet into the empty home to continue their conversation. Ivan waited outside and out of boredom managed to unlock the Buick with a piece of wire and climbed inside. While he sat in the car, uh, Ivan uh, watched as Dan Jordan approached the home. Ivan recalls Dan walking inside and hearing him say hello to his father before hearing the sounds of glass shattering. Inside the home, Joel was being assaulted. One of his assailants began to beat him senseless with a chair. Ivan heard one of the men shout, Kill him! before a gunshot rang out, followed closely after by another. Dan Jordan came running out of the door, looked across the street at the Catholic church where people were gathering to enter for mass, who were now staring straight at him. He straightened the collar of his coat, pulled his sleeves down, and casually walked down the driveway. Gamaliel had jumped from a side window of the house and was following Dan up the street. A block away, the men got into a station wagon and sped away. When Ivan mustered the courage, he exited the Buick and entered the home. There, he found his father on the floor, lying on his back with his arms up and blood running down the side of his face. While one of his assailants had wrestled him to the ground, the other had bent over and placed the barrel of a gun in Joel's mouth and pulled the trigger. The second shot had been fired at point blank and had completely destroyed his brain. He had been killed just a month after his 49th birthday. And uh, this is a quote directly from Anderson where he says, The events in Ensenada on August 20th did have a powerful, powerfully biblical ring to them. The first murder in the Bible was the slaying of Abel by Cain. For his first act towards ushering in the millennium, Ervil too had chosen fratricide. Well, that's not good. No, no. The firstborn church was now under the command of Verlin, and they were offering 24000 to anyone with information on the killers. 
As Others, if they didn't know it was Herbal? They weren't. They had an idea, but they weren't exactly sure who had um, done it. And they, they wanted carried it out. Yeah, gotcha. they wanted people. If anybody had information, they could come forward, and so that they could pass it on to the authorities. Others who had been threatened by Ervil were warned, including Harold B. Lee, the the president at the time of the LDS Church, who actually had his security tightened. In September, Ervil released an open letter in which he revised the history of him and his brother, and suggested to authorities that firstborners were the most likely culprits as Joel had failed them financially time and time again. In mid-December of 1972, after uh, firstborners would not lessen their quest for justice, Ervil tried a risky gamble. You see, Mason, under Mexican law, a prosecutor has only 72 hours from the time of a suspect's arrest to present enough evidence to get him or her bound for trial. So, knowing this, Ervil walked into Ensenada Police Headquarters with two lawyers and identified himself as a wanted man and asked that the charges against him be dropped immediately. He thought that the firstborner's lawyer wouldn't be able to assemble evidence in time, but he was wrong. Within the allotted time, the firstborner's lawyers had compiled enough material to bring charges against Ervil, which wasn't that fucking hard because he had literally released like three manifestos where he's like, I'm going to kill my brother. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. So Ervil was remanded to the Ensenada prison to await trial. During this time, Maude actually wrote to the governor of Baja California and urged him to keep Ervil locked up because she was afraid that he would continue to kill her sons. Dozens of firstborners raced to Ensenada to get a glimpse of the man who had killed their prophet. And in November of 1973, after testimony from firstborners, a judge found Ervil guilty of being the intellectual author of the killing and sentenced him to 12 years in prison. Not enough time in prison. No, no. In August of 1973, Hardward Stubbs, a former loyalist to Ervil, had visited the Chinoweth home in San Diego, who was one of, uh, uh, I think her name was Rena Chinoweth. She was one of uh, Ervil's wives. After staying the night with the house empty the next morning, he combed through the home and found Ervil's list of targets as well as addresses and routes. He feared that Ervil and his followers were planning a massive purge of Joel's followers, so he went straight to the FBI. But the first warner's peace of mind was short-lived. On December 14th, a day after he had been sentenced, his verdict was overturned by a higher Mexican court due to technical irregularities in the case. Thus, on February 14th, 1974, Ervil LeBaron was released, and his next manifesto, Hours of Crisis, Day of Vengeance, was also released. Good. Yes. During the 70s, despite what he had done, surprisingly, some firstborners actually joined Ervil, with Aurelio Rios being one of the most interesting cases. He was basically this guy who, uh, his daughters were actually married to Ervil, they were his first two wives, and his son was Gamaliel, who had assisted in the murder of Joel, and during the wake, he delivered a speech in front of the firstborners where he apologized for his family's involvements and pledged that he would find his children and bring them back and, and set them on the right path. The church even raised money for him to find them, and he did. And the curious thing is, rather than him swaying them back, they swayed him, and he became a loyal follower of Ervil. Mm. Do you think you had something to do with the fact that like, he just 
he thought it was the only way he could continue having a relationship with his children? Perhaps, or perhaps, and we'll get into this a little bit at the end, I just think he had the right mentality to be swayed mm. by Irvel. Gotcha. Anderson goes on to present the idea that, well, this is it right here, that Manson and Irvel's success comes not from their psyche, but rather that of their supporters. Anderson brings up Vincent Bugliosi, the L.A. district attorney who actually prosecuted Manson for the Tate-LaBianca murders, and his belief that despite that the fact that Manson had come across hundreds if not thousands of people while being set up in Spawn Ranch, it was the ones who, the ones who killed for Manson were simply the half-dozen sociopaths among the thousands of normal people who came into his path. Okay. So he, 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 Bugliosi basically argued that in cases like this, it's the law of averages. You know what I mean? Where right. it's just that the right people. if you have right a certain people. amount of followers, yeah. you're going event- to yeah. find, yeah. So he also argues uh, that Manson, or Ervil in this case, just simply acted as the catalyst for pre-existing hate or rage or madness. But what makes the Church of the Lamb of God particularly interesting is that Unlike the Manson family, the members were not on the fringes of society. They were they were upstanding citizens living in suburban homes, yet they still followed Ervil blindly and encouraged their children to not only do the same, but also kill for him. Now, Anderson presents a very interesting theory, saying all of Ervil's disciples had one thing in common. All had been raised in the Mormon faith. All had been troubled by the revisions in the Mormon doctrine long before encountering Ervil. All had previously studied Mormon fundamentalism and dabbled in fundamentalist sex. The seeds of doubt and dissatisfaction had already been planted in these people's minds. Ervil simply, simply brought them to blossom. By emulation, by emulation of certain personality traits of the first Mormon prophets, and by cleverly manipulating Mormon doctrines and beliefs, and by capitalizing on certain aspects of Mormon culture and history, he was able to patch together a convoluted dogma that convinced the disenchanted that he was the Lord's true prophet and the real inheritor of Joseph Smith's church. So basically what he's saying is, and we've already talked about this in the first episode, that Mormonism isn't culpable, they're not guilty, but they certainly helped with right. all of this. Had right. these people not have been Mormon and already ha- like had all this shit hammered into them, the obedience and everything, mm-hmm. they, wouldn't they wouldn't have, have been followed so yeah. Yeah, Ervil. So <clears throat> Anderson also points out that unlike most cults with Messiah, Messiah leaders, where the more the leader's personality becomes unsavory and violent, the quicker the followers lose faith, Ervil's worked the opposite way. The less than savory aspects of his personality uh, didn't dissuade his followers, but rather we reinforced their beliefs due to their Mormon roots. For instance, right. the early Mormon, and again, this is all episode one, the early Mormon prophets, they thirsted for riches. So right. in Ervil's money-making scheme, his followers saw parallels to Smith and Young and proof right. that he was a prophet because and that's what prophets atonement, did. Yeah. The, the idea that he wanted to murder all non-believers mm. was the idea of blood atonement. Yeah, the same The and same goes Brimming for... Brimming Young, marrying... Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, the shit, same yeah. thing with his polygamist and pedophilic pursuits. Um, the gift of revelation that Ervil possessed also drove home his identity to them because Smith right. and Young had revelations too. 
So Ervil learned from Smith and Young's habit of rewarding loyalists. For example, Dan Jordan was given the crown of eternal life. Uh, another man named Lloyd Sullivan, who had who had carried on killings for him at some point, was made first counselor to the president in the kingdom of God. So Ervil learned from Brigham, who did the same thing. Brigham would like Brigham and uh, Joseph Smith would, you know, tell guys like, "Oh, you can marry three wives. You can have this girl. You can, you know." Gotcha. Yeah. Ervil would also, and this is one of the most things that helped him the most, he would exploit the family emphasis of Mormonism. He would use the heads of families to keep younger members in check and dissuade them from leaving. Because Mormonism puts such an emphasis on the family structure, it can often right. feel like you're leaving your family when you leave the church. Which so, is why, and this is even in, I mean, even the when it comes down to the founding of Mormonism, where Joseph Smith's wife was like, this kind of seems like bullshit mm -hmm. or the wife of the guy who helped him write it was like, yeah. this kind of seems like bullshit, but it was like, shut up. Yeah. You don't get to make that decision. Yeah. Because I'm the head of the household and right. it's also like, Oh, so you don't believe in that. So you're breaking apart from this family. You don't want to be a part of this family anymore. Okay, cool. Right. Yeah. So effectively it's a way of controlling an entire <laughs> family by just controlling one person. Right. So <clears throat> he also uh, used Mormonism's obedience to authority to his advantage because in the Mormon church, authority rests with the president or the prophet. He is God's messenger, unerring and all-knowing. So because of this, Ervil's followers found it pretty easy to accept his demands for unquestionable obedience because unlike with other Christian ch churches, in Mormonism, again, like the prophet is literally God's mouthpiece, so he can't be wrong. Right. Whereas, like, even in, like, in Catholicism, the Pope is the interpreter. In of interpreting, yeah. So he can be wrong, right. uh, and you can doubt him, but in Mormonism, it's like, no, 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 no. He's literally the mouthpiece of God. Right. So, <clears throat> um, Ervil also used uh, Mormon Mormonism's history of persecution by Gentiles to convince his followers that outsiders were not to be trusted, that anyone who went against him was a traitor. In Ervil's mind, the history of the Mormon church was retaliation. So when he warned of God's wrath, he, when he organized his disciples into armed soldiers and urged his enemies to repent or face death, he wasn't breaking from Mormon faith, but rather emulating the practices set forth by the earliest Mormon prophets. By doing this, by twisting the doctrines and history of Mormonism, Ervil convinced a group of hardcore followers that not only did he have the right to commit murder, but it was his fucking responsibility. Mm. So his followers viewed this responsibility as proof that he was the one true inheritor of the Mormon church. And Ervil would then use paranoia heavily to convince his followers that they were constantly being prosecuted or persecuted. His followers would adapt a siege mentality, fortifying their homes, placing sentries to look out for the enemy. This would in turn help stifle independent thinking. And Ervil would often subject his followers to long monologues, even lasting 24 hours. This would help shatter psychological resistance in his followers. So despite right. the fact that he's kind of a country bumpkin, he was very smart. When he, like, well, fully... I mean, yeah, like, you talk about what you see the, like, the classic cult moves. You talk about, like, Jonestown, yeah. where he's, his sermons, even taped, are being blared across the ca the campus. He... Um, on loudspeakers and stuff, he's doing this where if you're always getting mm -hmm. that message punched into your face, you can't stop to think about it. He was surprisingly, like, well 
plugged in to what every to what he needed to to make his cult survive. He, was, he knew he, he had to the, isolate them. He knew he had yeah. to to get them paranoid, and, right. and and he knew that he had to uh, break their their individual thoughts so they wouldn't be like, oh shit, this isn't. He right. was the he was like the Babe Ruth of yeah. cult leaders, where like he just had natural talent to be a cult yeah. leader. And like Honestly, assuming yes. if he had put effort into it and like actually tried, it would have been even worse. And it's so funny because like again, there's a tr- there's a history of his of his brothers failing, and then he right. was the one who came along and was like, "No." Do you think he learned just even subconsciously? Yes. Do you think he learned from I think, his, his brothers' failures? I think he's a he's a nutcase, right? I think he's crazy, but I also think, and I hate to do this because I hate to give anybody credit, but I think mm-hmm. he was kind of smart, and I think sure. definitely because he followed. Two of them, right? As well, as, as their second in command, and I think he learned yeah. from them. Like, oh, this isn't how you keep people. You want to keep as people, you be you be violent. Well, and I think on a much smaller scale, even as a younger sibling, yeah, you know, I see my brother, especially as children. You know, I see my brother do something, and then my parents yell at him. Yeah, and then it's like, okay, I know either to not do that thing or to make sure I don't get caught doing that thing. Right. Yeah. So. Where my brother is, he's testing these limits and finding out where these limits and these restrictions are. As a younger sibling, it's like, I've already learned that without having to put it to the test myself, so now I can go farther than that. Yeah. And that's where he's just subconsciously picking up on what what will work and what won't because he's seeing the failures before him. Yeah, exactly. So after isolating his followers and breaking their psyches, Ervil had total and utter control. He could call followers in Dallas in the middle of the night and ask them to drive to California or plan the next murder or anything, and they would almost certainly do it. Ervil then began to act like a medieval king, using his daughters to create loyalty and alliances. Around this time, his followers began to believe in the evil lieutenant myth and blamed Dan Jordan for the unsavory things Ervil did. And basically, super quickly, the evil lieutenant myth happens a lot in cults where basically people are like, it's not the it's not the leader's fault. It's who he surrounded himself with. They're they're tempting yeah. him. They're they're making him bad, you right. know. When in reality, it is just the leader. So it um this also helped. It it also helped that Ervil, despite his rage and temper, did not like to get his hands dirty. He was very much like Manson and Hitler in that sense. He preferred others to carry out the killings. Ervil had what Manson wanted: family, real flesh and blood family. Anderson argues that Ervil's looks also helped play a part in all this because, and and he, when he was younger, he was handsome. When he was old, he was ugly. But had he not have been so handsome and charming, he wouldn't have gotten so many of the women in his life to do his bidding as easily. And Ervil's wives would also play a huge part in what was to come, not just from like actually taking part in the killings but in enforcing it with their children and raising them and indoctrinating them into the mentality that that Ervil was presenting and in, in his mission and finally Ervil had believed that by removing the fallen prophet joel the firstborners would flock to him but this had not been the case so he realized that in order to bring the heretics in order an all-out cleansing was needed and in December of 1974, Ervil chose the site for the first cleansing, Los Molinos. And that is where we will pick up next time with part four of Ervil Abaron and the Church of the Lamb of God as we delve into his murder spree, his blood atonement campaign, and everything that followed. 
Yay. Yeah. It's it's a really again I can't stress this enough people should read this book but it's a really interesting examination and I left out a bunch of stuff for time's sake but it's a really interesting examination of cult mentality and 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 again like he goes further into it and maybe we'll talk a little bit next episode about just the the the, the key roles and the key parts that his wives played in it and it's uh just very interesting. Well, Mason, let's wrap the show up. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you like the show, make sure to leave a five-star review, which you can do in-app on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify. We'd really appreciate it if you leave us a review. Plus, it really helps the show, and we'll read your review on the show. You can support the show by going to patreon.com backslash captainslogcast and donate a dollar. Anything helps keep the lights on. Uh, another thing you could do to help the show and yourself is go over to TeePublic and shop our merch. Click the link in our show notes and grab yourself anything with our new design on it. Remember, if you donate slash support, it all goes towards improving the show, getting better recording equipment, etc. Mason, where can these fine little cult listeners of ours find you? You can follow me on Instagram at Mason Schrader, where you can see all of my art and my good. drawings and my graphic design stuff. Pretty good shit, not gonna lie. Thank you. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at j.valle underscore junior and the show on Twitter and Instagram at Captain's Logpad as well as TikTok. And it's the same handle, at Captain's Logpod. Uh, there you will see us post different materials, show updates, and uh, occasionally funny things, behind-the-scenes stuff. So go check it out. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can find me as Jose Valle Jr., Animal Productions, and, of course, the show's official YouTube channel, Captain's Log. If you can't get enough of me and you want to listen to my other podcast with a friend of the log, Max Benyon, you can do so. It is called Max and Jose Have Something to Say. Make sure you tell your friends and family about the show if you enjoy it. And if you'd like to share your opinion on this case or have some insight to share, please do so by writing in to captainslogcast at gmail.com. You can also suggest episode topics, guests you'd like to have back, etc. Make sure to subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, and any other podcast directory out there. We want to say a huge thank you to Carlos Rivera for composing our show's theme. With that, everybody, we have reached the end of our show, and we will see you soon for another episode. I've been your captain, Jose Valle Jr., joined by... Mason... The... Grand Head Trader. And this has been Captain's Log. End of transmission. Pew.